Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. I'm Bob St. Pierre, and I am, well, I'm in a lot of places right now. I'm at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous uh, in Boise, Idaho. And more specifically, I'm at the uh, Idaho Game and Fish Department offices, and we are going to have an episode talking exclusively about the state of Idaho. When we started this podcast, the Pheasants Forever Quail Forever podcast about, oh, I guess it, we're closing in on nine months ago, we made a commitment to, to always do it live. And as folks, uh, frequent listeners know, we haven't done a lot of Western podcasts, so here we are. We're going to do an Idaho one in person. My my co-host is our Western Regional Rep, Matt Harding. Welcome to On the Wing Podcast, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's and good, it, good to see you out here in the West. Yeah, I'm, it's it's been a couple uh, um, couple of months since I was out here last. It is well, it's been a couple years since I've been out in Idaho last. I was out west recently, but it's just beautiful out here. It's a great place. I'm I'm really lucky to have it as part of my territory. Uh, so your territory for our listeners, um, what states do you cover for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever? I've got um, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Utah, and then a um, bit of Northern California and Nevada. Big geography. It is. And folks uh, tuning in and hearing your voice for the first time, you're used to big geography. I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give us the, the small version or the short version of uh, where that accent of yours comes from. Oh, it's a mix of uh, England, Canada, Australia, East Coast, West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> England, Canada, Australia, East Coast, and West Coast. You've been everywhere. There's a song like that. There probably uh, should be. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, well, joining us uh, on this uh Idaho-specific podcast, we have Sal Palazzolo, who I have known for, for quite a few years, uh, dating back to your time in Nebraska. Yeah, that goes back quite a while, back to probably, heck, 15 years ago or so. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll dive into your background, and but we also have uh, Jeff Kinetter with us. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for uh, coming in on a Saturday into, into the... Um, to the office and wearing your Idaho game and fish uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate you, you making time. Um, well, let's start with Sal. Um, tell us a little bit about um, what you do for Idaho and what your background is. So I'm the uh, private lands program coordinator for the state. So I administer all our uh, private lands habitat projects, um, our mule deer initiative, our access uh, programs, as well as our private lands depredation uh, conflict programs within the state. Private lands depredation conflict. Yep. That's a fancy way of saying when elk and deer get into haystacks and cornfields. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thanks for that clarification <laughs> for me. Uh, Jeff, what's your role? So I'm the Upland Game and Migratory Game Bird Program Coordinator. So if there's a bird that you can harvest in the state that falls under my program, except for sage grouse. Oh, really? Okay. So obviously with, with um, the private lands guy and the upland bird guy, our, our topics today are you know, pretty natural. It's uh, Idaho f uh, for the traveling bird hunter. We're going to talk about um, all the mixed bag opportunities in this state. We're going to talk a, a little bit about um, uh, the best state in the country, the best state in the world to, to come and chase Columbian sharptails. 
Uh, talk a little bit about sage grouse and a little bit about uh, public land opportunities for the traveling bird hunter. So, um, it, you know, as, as I think about Idaho, it, I think about mixed bags. You know, the, the secret is definitely out on, on Hell's Canyon. The, the flush, the Pheasants Forever television, Pheasants Forever television show has been out here. Um, Project Upland has done a um, story on Hell's Canyon. So there's, there's a lot of folks that recognize Hell's Canyon as a uh, mixed bag opportunity, but that really extends beyond just that one place. The whole state is sort of rich from um, um, opportunity to, to go park your truck and you never know what's going to flush behind um, your, your dog. So, so let's start um, in the north. The north is primarily forested geography, right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as, as you talk about not knowing what's going to flush in front of the gun, I mean, Sal and I talk all, all the time about what makes Idaho special is really the opportunity. Um, we've got 10 species of upland game birds here in Idaho, if we include turkeys. Uh, so you've got five native grouse species, sage grouse, Columbian sharp-tailed grouse, dusky or blue grouse, uh, rough grouse, and spruce grouse. And then on top of that, we've got California quail, gray partridge, a lot of people call them Hungarian partridge, um, pheasants, California quail, and then, like I said, turkeys. So, um, chucker. And chucker. There you go. Boy, how could I forget chucker? Good <laughs> chucker. Yeah. Matt won't let you forget chucker. <laughs> Matt's favorite bird is chucker. Uh, so, so 10 upland species, including turkeys, and, and in the north, in the forest, how many of those species can you chase up north? So if you were to be in our panhandle region, which is our furthest north region, mm -hmm. um, certainly all three species of forest grouse are available up there. And then to a lesser extent, you will find pheasants, California quail, gray partridge kind of on the southern end of that, uh, that region. If you move a f little further south into the Clearwater region, your opportunities expand tremendously. Mm. Um, that's when you get to kind of that Hell's Canyon, uh, Salmon River country, um, and that's where you're picking up, again, all three species of forest grouse, more abundant populations of pheasants, California quail, um, your gray partridge, the chuckers. Um, it, it's a pretty amazing place. Yeah. I, I would kind of sell Craig Mountain at the same level as, as the Hell's Canyon, hmm. um, Andrus Wildlife Management Area country. Uh, so in my mind, and I admit I've never I've fished in Idaho, but I've never bird hunted in Idaho. But in well, my that's mind, that's a shame. I, well, we, it, Matt's already told me we're going to change that in short order. But my dream scenario is, you know, I'm floating the snake, you know, maybe catch a sturgeon, right, and then pull up. Sal's smiling. He's like, you, you got to catch a sturgeon first, right? <laughs> sure. Why I've not? Never, I've never caught one, but uh, I've, I'm still. It's still on my list. It's pretty good. It's on my bucket. Pretty list. good populations of sturgeon. Oh right? yeah. yeah. So yeah. you you pull up and then the hunt begins, right? And so my vision of it or my dream scenario is, you let the dog out of the boat and I start climbing that hill and I, I'm hunting different species with each elevation. Is that an accurate representation? It's an accurate representation. That, uh, it's, it's difficult to relay the uh, accurate description of what that climb entails. Okay. Right, right, right. <laughs> you noticed I'm a flatlander. Right. right. You only said climb one time. You yeah. should have put climb and then climb and then climb and then start hunting. So, uh, so um, take me on that journey. I, I've you know, roped up the boat. Dogs got out. Then what? What what am I gonna first do? What am I gonna first see? So if you were to be at like uh, 
Craig Mountain, for example. I mean, you're going to start low. There's going to be some riparian areas along the river okay. as well as um, creek bottoms. And so that's where you're going to encounter your, your California quail, likely. Um, and then you'll see big grassy slopes that eventually turn into timber on the very top. And so that change could be three to 4,000 feet in elevation. Yeah. Um, so you're looking at a substantial climb if you want to go all the way from the bottom up to the top mm -hmm. and, and chase all those species. Some people like to start from the bottom. Some people like to start from the top. Um, I kind of like starting from the bottom because you get your climb in and then you can come down at the mm -hmm. end of the day. But uh, those grassy hillsides are going to have your gray partridge. Um, the riparian areas are going to have your pockets of forest grouse, primarily rough grouse, um, as well as pheasants. And then you know, as you kind of make your way up, you're going to get into that rocky terrain where you're going to find chuckers, and then eventually the, the more more timbered habitats where you might find those those blue grouse. So, I mean, there, there's the potential for a 30-plus bird day. Sal and I have never done that sort of thing, but the opportunity exists there in regard to quail, partridge, chuckers, pheasants, forest grouse. It would be a, it'd be a pretty tremendous day. Have you ever done that, Matt? I haven't done that many, no. It sounds like a heavy bird bag for, with all those hills. <laughs> yeah. I think I'd be loving every minute if I was able to do that. Uh, what's the most number of birds you've ever been able to harvest in a particular walk? <laughs> I'm sorry, did I, I'm, variety, I can't say variety. that on the radio. Variety, oh, variety, variety. variety. Yeah, okay. not number, but yeah. variety of birds. Because I'd have to qualify that with how many shots I take. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Um, right. The highest, I think, I'm going to go with, I think, I want to say four. Yeah, I think I'd probably fall in the same category. Yeah, Chucker, yeah. Chucker hunts, you know, a quail, and then occasionally you'll get that opportunistic grouse. Or pheasant. Or pheasant. Yeah. Huh. You know, from a, a Midwestern mid, uh, mixed bagger, you know, if you get three, you know, you're really, I scored. Right? You, you know, Minnesota, there's potential for pheasant, rough grouse, um, woodcock. You know, in certain places, maybe a sharp tail. You go to, you know, your, your old state in Nebraska, um, you know, maybe a prairie chicken, a quail, pheasant. Um, you know, Wisconsin, there's a few places. But, you know, when you start thinking about four, five, six on a different walk, that's, that's the magic of the West, really, mm -hmm. in, in my mind. Absolutely. I mean, a, a few years ago, we had all, all the stars aligned and our, our sharp tail season, our sage grouse season, as well as our forest grouse season all overlapped. And so we had um, ended up featuring a hunter who had um, harvested what we determined as the grand slam, the native grouse grand slam, killed all five species in one week. <laughs> and so that's, uh, it'd be pretty tough to do it all in one day, but yeah. you can certainly do it in one week. And that, I mean, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, that's incredible. And, um, we, we talked before we, we hit record here. Uh, you own, um, Jeff, large Munsterlanders. Yep. And, um, Sal is a fellow team GSP short hair, short hair guy. Correct. Um, and, and Matt is a German wire hair guy. So all three of you guys in the West, um, pointing dog breeds. Is that pretty common that when you're out here in this terrain, a, a pointing dog is an advantage? Is it a must? Or is it, uh, you know, it's a function of how much waterfall in you do? I, uh, so you, you might need a retriever difference. Or is it just personal preference like anywhere else? I was going to go with, I think it's just personal, per, uh, you know, you know what? What's your favorite species, or, or you know, breed, or, yeah. or what you like to do? I mean, we have folks within the department that have the whole Britneys, Labs, sure. uh, Setters, Chessies, 
you know, all the uh, the whole. So it's not suite. really a regional specific thing. No, it's just really what you want to do because again, we we're not talking waterfowl, but Idaho's a, a tremendous waterfowl uh, state, and uh, you know, I mean, we even have a there's a coworker in here that uh, hunts chuckers without a dog. You know, he yeah. just walks them up. Um, it's it's <laughs> you're shaking your head, you know, Matt. Sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're a, you're an incredibly passionate chucker hunter. Do you feel like, from a chucker perspective, you have to have a pointing dog, or would you you be able to argue that you know a lab would be just fine? Um, I mean, I think it would definitely be advantageous to have a pointing dog. I mean, on chuckers, you know, covering the terrain and then holding the birds, mm-hmm. um, you know, is a huge advantage when you're up in those hills. And sometimes the dog might be a hundred yards away, but it It'll take you a long time to get there because you're going straight up. So <laughs> with a flushing dog, you know, I think you'd be at a, a bit of a disadvantage. Um, but, you know, if you're hunting pheasant and waterfowl. Right. It's probably no different than if you were in Nebraska. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah I mean, I would echo what everybody said in regard to personal preference. I mean, I, I have no interest in hunting over a flushing dog, chasing chuckers or, or, or partridge. Um, I like that dog to be way out in front of me and covering lots of ground because that's when I think about Idaho and that opportunity we've talked about, um, we've got so much public land and such big country um, that I want that dog to be doing a lot of work for me so that I don't have to go to every nook and cranny myself because otherwise you'd be up and down the mountain zigzagging around. It'd be challenging. But that being said, I know some incredibly effective checker hunters that hunt with a lab. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. What's the advantage for them? Just the dog knows the game? I, I think so. I think it's about, you know, like anything, building a uh, or any relationship with a dog, you're building that trust. And as long as you can get that dog to work close and you don't mind walking to every place mm-hmm. that you want to check out, sure. you're, it can be real good. So uh, large monster lander, I don't think I've ever hunted behind a large monster lander. A number of small monster lander. Nebraska has a bunch of people that with small monster landers. I think mm-hmm. a, a Dick Bell in particular, um, but uh, large Munsterlanders. What's the difference other than the obvious between large and small Munsterlander, and what's what pulled you towards uh, that breed? So um, the the difference, I guess I'll start with. I mean, they're one of the nine sort of recognized uh, versatile hunting dogs that originate in Germany. Um, they're more closely related to German long-haired pointers than okay. they are to, to small Munsterlanders, and so. German long hairs tend to be brown and white, mm-hmm. and uh, large Munsterlanders are black and white. So they look like a tall, black and white English setter for mm. the most part. Um, and uh, they're known for very strong tracking and retrieving skills. And so at the time when I was getting a dog, um, I was in graduate school. I was doing my field work in North Dakota. Wanted a dog that would point, wanted a dog that would retrieve. And uh, someone, they said, well, have you ever considered a large monster lander? And I, just like everybody says to me now, they're like, a what? Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, at the time, we, uh, uh, my, my wife and I looked into the, uh, um, the, the opportunity to actually meet one. We had never seen one sure. before. And then uh, we'd been put in touch with a few folks in Wisconsin where we lived. And quite honestly, we fell in love with the people um, that, that own these dogs. Then when we started hunting with them, we, uh, we fell in love with the dogs. We're on our our third one now and um they do everything that that we've asked them to do and and they're incredibly good family dogs so that's one of the things i like and i think they adjust to their terrain really well um 
I suspect that if you ask somebody in Wisconsin or Minnesota how far their dog range, it's going to be a bit different yeah. than how far yeah. my dog range. It is amazing when you let a dog out. Um, I, I noticed this because I went on a f- my very first ever horseback hunt this fall. When you release the dog in big country, it was in northeastern Montana, big country with a horse, the dog just naturally knows, like, well, I can stretch out to 600 yards. Then you go back to, you know, the north woods, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Yeah, I'm going to keep it a little bit tighter, right? They, oh, they yeah. just, in, yeah. they, they're so much smarter than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so I'm float, we're, we're floating back down that snake, and we're, we're out, we're climbing. Is it one of the stats you guys told me before we started is that 60% of the state of Idaho is in public lands. So as you're um, going down Hell's Canyon or some of these places, is it pretty much you're, you're clear to, to go hunt along that entire ravine or that entire canyon? Or is it some, something that you got to really know your maps and or you know have onyx and um, there's a lot of private land, public land boundaries? I think it's always important to, to, to know uh, the property lines, um, especially now. In Idaho, if it, if it wasn't posted two years ago, right. you could access that property and you were, you were in good oh, shape. Oh, so it's kind of that from a Midwestern perspective, it was like North Dakota, right? right. If it was not a... It was like North Dakota. Was, it was. Okay, it two was. years ago that changed. Yeah, the trespass law changed two years ago. Okay. So. So now it's ever more important to have an app or be mm-hmm. very, very familiar with your maps to make sure that you're not trespassing. And I, I would say that river stuff is pro- can be kind of tricky in that a lot of times the property that borders a river or a creek bottom is privately owned. Mm-hmm. So you want to fi- figure out how you can get past that up into the country yeah. above it that may or be owned by BLM or, or us or, right. or whomever. Okay. Yeah, I would I would echo what Jeff said. Definitely having a map is is important. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, in that Hell's Canyon country, there is a a ton of public land. So there's some pretty lengthy stretches that, as soon as you hit the public part, it's it's public for a long, long ways and all the way to the top. And is it as you know? It, it's a bucket list for me. You know, for, it, it seems top three places to go bird hunting in the world. Should I get here before I die kind of place? It looks just beautiful. I would I would say get there before you get old because it's right. also a workout. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's a good point. That's the challenge. I mean, a, a few years ago, I was approached by a, a, a retired gentleman that I used to work with in Wisconsin who wanted to come out and hunt chuckers on his bucket list. Yeah. And Sal, you joined us for a day yeah. or two there. Yep. And uh, um we made it happen, which was great. Um, and, you know, there are places where you can gain a lot of elevation in your vehicle uh, first um, mm-hmm. and then get a chucker. And so I, after he had harvested his chucker, I said, well, you know, these are your options. We can continue to chase chuckers or we can maybe drop down and chase some quail and partridge, that kind of thing. And he said, yeah, if it's all the same to you, I think dropping down would be great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we had an awesome time. So. Um, and the gear you need because of the terrain is a little bit different than you might be used to in the Midwest, right? I mean, Matt, you were telling me how many pairs of boots you go through this season? Three. (laughs) (laughs) Like literally blew out three pairs of boots. And that's all because of chucker hunting. Yeah. I mean, I hunt 90% chucker, so I'm in that rough terrain all the time and I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So what kind of boots uh, describe... 
it's a really aggressive sole that's the key and stable ankles or what's what's the key yeah i, I sw- switched over to a full mountaineering boot for next season mm-hmm. um it's not it's got a slightly more flexible shank than than a high-end mountaineering boot that's meant to be made for crampons okay um it's got a full rubber rand around the toe um pretty aggressive tread vibram soles um you know i just got something as stiff as i could without making it hard to walk basically Mm -hmm. is that the most critical element when you're coming out here is is what kind of boots you got i think boots are important i mean when I take a lot of phone calls from folks that are coming from wherever, you yeah. know, Tennessee or Florida or somewhere that is very different than here. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think you have to have considerations about, about yourself, but you also have consideration about you, about your dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to your feet, certainly those high-end boots are very valuable. I wear through boots and my rands very quickly. Um, it's just, it's tough. And here in Idaho, especially our best chucker country is, is uh of lava derivation and so it tends to be sharp it's right. it's rugged it's tough country tough slopes um and so you need to keep the same thing in mind in regard to your dog mm. I, i've known a lot of people that come out and they run the feet off their dog in the first half day wow. and then you have no dog for the rest of your trip so if you planned a week-long trip and you run the feet off your dog um it's tough so I, my recommendation is always if if you can get the feet under your dogs one it's very difficult to prepare for this country mm-hmm. but you're going to want to go all day first thing out of the box. I a half day is what I'd recommend the first go around and just try to get that dog, uh, you know, get it, get it under, under its feet. So I guess in addition to that, you know, I would water, yep. is, yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, you, you kind of use the hell's Canyon example where you have the river, but once you're up away from that river, there's no, it's not like the Midwest or, right. or North Dakota where you have stock tanks or, right. or ponds or whatever you're, you know, I mean, Jeff and I, you're carrying the water, for both you and the dog, and especially mm-hmm. if you run a bigger, long-haired dog uh, that heats up a little bit, sure. you know, you're carrying water for both you and the dog the whole time. Um, are you camelbacking then, or do you, do you have bottles, or what, how much water you, do you need on a uh, Hell's Canyon run? Depends on how long yeah. you're going to be out. Yeah. I Well, I mean, speaking for myself, I generally cannot pull off a whole day. I don't, you know, I mean... I do half-day hunts. Okay, gotcha. I mean, that's kind of what I do. It's mm-hmm. just kind of a fun. It's also our luxury. It's a, Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, it is a luxury, definitely. But, you know, so, yeah, a couple couple bottles or a camelback or something like that with ever, you know, sure. again, you will find a little bit of water occasionally in the spots, but, uh, you know, you should plan on, on the water. Um, All depends on season, too. I yeah. mean, so our seasons typically start for Chuckers and Great Partridge the third Saturday in September. So it's still pretty doggone warm right. at that time yeah. of the year. But the season goes all the way till January 31. And so the conditions on opening day versus the very tail end of the season sure. are very different. Yeah. And so I myself, I typically don't start hunting until November um, just because um, – it's warm early. There are snakes out early. Sal knows I don't like snakes. <laughs> <laughs> I should say it's not that I don't like them. I have an ill will towards snakes. I just don't want to run into them. Right. Are I'm you like, going to run into them out here? I would say yes, you yeah. will. If, yeah. you, if you hunt early, you will. Um, and I, I don't know how often because I don't spend that much time doing it. But we had a cold snap a couple years ago in September, and I felt real good about getting out, and I still ran into snakes. Yeah. So. Uh, so are you guys doing um, um, snakes? like snake avoidance training with your pups are you doing the the anti-venom or are you just saying we're just gonna 
take our chances and try to avoid them as best we can. I I mean I haven't done it. Both I, my older short hair. I used to live in Arizona, so mm-hmm. she was exposed to rattlesnakes down there, and just out of good luck, she doesn't like them. Sure. Maybe I'm pressing my luck, but you know, yeah, I just I haven't had. I mean, like Jeff, we I've seen them out there. We've heard them. But knock on wood, at this point, I've never had any problem. But, I mean, again, it's, again, personal choice sure. on what, what people want to do as far as training or, or anything like that. Um, the opportunity is certainly available. There are several uh, yeah. avoidance clinics that are held here in the Valley. I don't know anybody that used the anti-venom. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I mean, dogs get bit every year. And, I mean, that's just one of those things that kind of happens. Yeah. And I, I don't know how prevalent it is compared to other places, but I, for me, it's just, it's also my comfort. I, sure. I don't care to be out hunting when it's 80 degrees right, outside. Right, it's right. just, it's, it's Hell's Canyon, especially can be brutal. Hmm. Uh, they call it Hell's Canyon for a reason. So, yeah. um, <laughs> I, the nice thing come November, December, January, so oftentimes you'll find snow on the ground. The dogs can, can use that to cool down and, and eat snow. But I mean, for myself, I carry two, uh, large containers of water um, on my on my hips, and then I'll have a camelback for my for myself. Hmm. What about you, Matt? Do you uh, do any snake avoidance or the the vaccine or anything? Um, I do the vaccine. Yeah. Um, luckily, I haven't had to see if it works or not yet. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to sign up for the snake avoidance training as well. Huh. I mean, just because I hunt, mostly hunt chucker, it's usually in snake country, and I have seen them in places as late as December. Have you which really? is a little crazy. That's not normal. Um, but I came across probably five in total last year, but none in Idaho. Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. Here's your sales pitch. Avoid snakes come to Idaho. <laughs> uh, Maybe. Uh, um, so Hell's Canyon is the well-known destination, but maybe a little bit less known as Magic Valley. Right? What's different about Magic Valley compared to Hell's Canyon in terms of the number of birds and access? There's a lot more private land in the Magic Valley for sure. Um, historically, we talked a little bit about this before we started, that historically the Magic Valley was the um, the heart of pheasant country in, in Idaho. Um, there was a time period when we were harvesting three-quarters of a million pheasants in Idaho, and due to a, a kind of tremendous habitat change here, we've lost a great deal of our pheasants. But in general, um, you can still find pheasants mm-hmm. um, kind of in the odd corners um, uh, of that region. There's a lot of dairy production there, a lot of alfalfa um, where they still flood irrigate. You can mm-hmm. find good numbers of pheasants and, and gray partridge and quail. Um, and then you kind of get down into kind of the canyon country on the, the south and the west end of that region of our state, as well as the very southern end of that state. You're going to start getting into your gray partridge, your, your chuckers. Um, and, I mean, the reality is chucker country is chucker country. I mean, whether it's Hell's Canyon or, or the Magic <laughs> Valley, it's going to be tough. It's going to be steep. It's going to be rocky. It's going to be dry. Hmm. Um, Tell me a little bit more about how long ago did um, you guys harvest three-quarters of a million pheasants? Was that, you know, the early days of CRP or was that more recently? So we'd have to go back a ways to get into that. That's more like the uh, probably the kind of the 50s through okay. the 70s. So Soil Bank maybe era? Soil Bank is probably more accurate. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you said there's been pretty dramatic land use changes since that time. It, it, you know, the assumption is a lot of the th- same things that have happened all over the country, you know, just intensified um, use of the land, more development, it, it, 
that same sort of thing happened in Idaho, or is there um, something specific that's changed in Idaho that's precipitated the pheasant population decline? Yeah, I think it's, well, I was gonna, yeah, Jeff can jump in. I think it's, you know, similar to what everybody else said. Historically, a lot of our ag was, was small grains. Mm. Um, it was smaller fields. It was flood irrigated, so it was kind of messy, you sure. know, messy farming. You know, the right, advent the f- of the 50s came all the new... Uh, herbicides and pesticides that came along with that, you know, uh, that time frame. And we've just gotten more and more uh, intense agriculture going out on the landscape. And it's just become cleaner farming um, versus what it was. And we have varieties of grains that are shorter in stature or harvested a little bit earlier than they were, a little less alfalfa production than we had historically. Um, so those kind of the same things. So it, it, we have seen a big transition to dairy. And in some cases, we have seen lower alfalfa. In some areas, we've seen an increase in alfalfa mm. production. And as part of that, they've gotten much more efficient with the way they irrigate and grow that crop. And so they're um, getting a lot more cuttings. And the cuttings are much earlier than they were historically. So what may have been nesting habitat 30 years ago in an alfalfa field no longer serves that purpose because they're cutting it so quickly and it, and it doesn't provide the same nesting cover. Hmm. We've also had a, a big change in uh, even the native or, you know, what I would say the native habitat. We, you know, probably, I don't know what the numbers were in the fifties, but I mean, we've had a serious increase in the amount of wildfires in the state mm-hmm. in that shrub step with that has brought in uh, annual invasives, cheatgrass, Medusa head, Venata. Um, so probably what was, pretty nice bunch grass sagebrush native habitat around these ag fields due to fire and whatnot has in some cases converted over to cheatgrass and medusa head flats okay is nesting cover the the limiting factor for primarily for upland birds in idaho I'm, I'm assuming that winter cover isn't that big of an issue here i mean certainly you have winter but it's the nesting cover that holds the key to the populations i would argue that the nesting cover is the number one limiting factor when it comes to pheasants and, and probably any other game bird in idaho as yep. well mm-hmm. yeah well what about the you know we talk a ton at pheasants forever and quail forever about pollinator habitat brood cover uh, you know mixed mixing forbs with that um, native grass uh, for nesting cover but then once the chicks are hatched is that something that there's a focus in Idaho on uh, having more forbs and flowering plants into the um, um, the grass mixtures that are out there yeah absolutely I mean the forbs is is one of our top focus is making sure that we if we're doing any kind of habitat projects that we're putting that the diverse sure mix down on the ground Idaho's a little different I don't want to get too far down the weather pattern but Idaho gets southern Idaho gets almost all its rain in the winter time you know we don't get that we get a little bit of summer rain but I mean it, it generally shuts down in the in the summertime so that winter rain that early spring rain is what sets up you know, our nesting season, mm. uh, very different than what your right. experience in Minnesota or Nebraska as it far sounds, as... It sounds like, you know, what I've talked to folks in Arizona or Nevada, like the Gamble's quail population is determined by how much precipitation happens in the winter. Is it, it parallel to what you're talking about in southern Idaho? Yeah, I, w- I mean, from a chucker hunt quail standpoint, I would say it's it's 
pretty well driven by precipitation. Definitely driven by precipitation, but I would say it depends, you know, and when, when we get that, that precip, as Sal mentioned, we get an awful lot of precip in the wintertime, you know, that our snowpack is really important to our, um, our cover here. Spring rains are super beneficial, but we also want to make sure that during that nesting period, we don't get cool, wet sure. weather. You know, sure. if you think about these, these gallinaceous birds, you know, when they come out of the, the shell, they can't thermoregulate. And mm-hmm. so they need to be out feeding and foraging during the day. And if it's cool and wet during that time period, it's a death sentence. So there's yeah. like kind of a 10 to 20 day period, I would argue, um, is, is in critically important to what our population is going to look like in the fall. But one thing I'd I'd like to throw out there that um, we don't have sort of the baseline information on gray partridge and, and, and chuckers and a lot of those species like we do from the Midwest or the East, because it just hasn't been um, the same level of priority uh, of getting that, that work done. So we're relying a lot on backtracking with wing data and things like okay. that and, and kind of tracking weather patterns through time to help us predict what's going to happen in the fall. When, when is the, the core nesting season start in Idaho? Or, and does that dramatic, or does that vary dramatically based on the, the bird we're talking about and the, the geography in the state because it is so diverse here? So it definitely varies. There's no doubt about that. But I would say that we're, we're just ramping up right now. Right. So we're, we're initiating nests uh, probably across the state. So late April, early May is nest initiation. Um, right. And then um, then probably hatches early, early June, June, mid-June. Yep. Okay. Yep. So it's exactly. very similar to the Midwest. Yeah, I think yeah. that that's pretty similar. Um, and uh, kind of lost my train of thought there. I was trying to figure out where I was going to go in regard to um, – Bird populations. Oh, you had mentioned the, the state. I mean, I talk to a lot of folks every year that are asking for their forecast. In fact, I got my first fall forecast phone call this past and week. And you got a fall mm-hmm. forecast? They, they can't, you can't even say what the I fall is going to be like. I right know. Now. They got in front of the PFQF guys already. Yeah, they'll, well. They'll, they'll probably get those <laughs> next week. <laughs> we won't ask you who, who, uh, who inquired about the fall already. No, I'm not going <laughs> to mention that individual's name. We've, we've got kind of a running joke. But, I mean, it, yeah. every year we – you know, Sal and I kind of joke about this because we work on these forecasts together mm-hmm. a lot of the time, is that Idaho is incredibly geographically diverse. So right. you look at a place like Hell's Canyon compared to eastern Idaho where it's much higher elevation than it is here in south- southwest Idaho, we could have uh, a storm system move through one part of the state that doesn't hit another part of the state. And so we can have incredibly diverse populations um, of the same species just in different parts of our state. I know you see the same thing in Nevada, too. Different mountain ranges will have much greater productivity in one year than another one. So it's just one of those things where every year is a little different. Hmm. So you you mentioned as you head further south in the state, that's really where you get into the the higher elevations, right? The the chuckers um, or... You find chucker all across the state. I wouldn't say all across the state, but sort of starting at Lewiston in that Clearwater region coming south, you're going to find chuckers. And then you kind of get to a limit in the eastern side of the state where where you get higher elevation, tougher winters. Winters comes Winter okay. comes earlier. Um, but our salmon region also maintains mm-hmm. a fairly healthy chucker population. Again, they've got pretty steep slopes in that part of the world. They're at a bit of a low point right now. They had a really tough winter a couple of years ago that knocked their chuckers way back. Okay. But uh, um, we had a former regional wildlife manager that argued you could have a year-round chucker season and you'd never have an impact on the population. Just because <laughs> okay. it, it's, it's, a lot of that country is so inaccessible. 
when you th- when you think about the variety of birds, you said there's ten game bird species. Let's take out turkeys and call it nine. Mm-hmm. Um, it, can you? What's the priority in terms of the hunters? Are they are they going out a field trying to target a specific species, or is it, you know, the folks are are purely looking for a mixed bag? I think it that's a it's a difficult question to answer, and uh, part of that you know I kind of mentioned that we're in the process of updating our upland game management plan here. As part of that, we went out and we did a public opinion survey and asked people what their top three yeah. favorite species were to hunt, and pheasant is still king is here in okay? Idaho. Even though we do not harvest very many pheasants here in Idaho, that is the most preferred species to hunt. Now, whether or not folks are going to South Dakota to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, versus Idaho, I don't know the answer to that, but that's still number one. Uh, number two would be rough grouse, and number three are, are chuckers. So in, in regard to our random sample of hunters in Idaho, that's what we were told. Um, I, you know, it's never a good idea to use yourself as an example, but I mean, you know, Sal and I, you know, from where we sit here in our office can be hunting within... 20 minutes to an hour chasing chuckers or partridge. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably what we hunt mm-hmm. more often than not. And there are a lot of people here in Treasure Valley, Nevada as well, that are chucker hunters because of the access to habitat. But there are certainly plenty of people that are that are rough grouse hunters or forest grouse hunters. And so I, I think it really all depends. And the timing of when they're available is different mm-hmm. too. So, I mean, our, our forest grouse season starts very late August, uh, runs all the way until the end of December. Um, those chucker partridge quail seasons start third Saturday, September. Columbian sharp-tailed grouse season runs the month of October. Um, and so you can kind of split your season up a little bit, too. And mm. it really all depends on where you live, too. You talk, pheasants are still king um, in the state of Idaho. You talked a little bit earlier about finding them in some riparian areas. Mm-hmm. The uh, obvious connection also is with ag lands, right? And, and you assume find them. Um, buffers and edges around where you find agriculture. Where where are the, some of the hotter spots to find pheasants in the state of Idaho? Southwest region. I mean, where where, where we sit we're here, um, um, if you can still find ag fields, mm-hmm. um, you're in good shape. We're we're in the fastest growing region of the country right now, population wise. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So well, it's easy to see why you walk out yep. the door and it's just gorgeous. Yeah. Good weather, beautiful mountain country, easy pace of life. Yeah. Right. So southwest region, the Magic Valley still has good pheasant hunting opportunity. A lot of it is on private ground, so you'd have to knock on doors and and get permission. Southeast region can be a a kind of a, 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 I don't want to say a hidden gem, but I think anywhere in southern Idaho where you're willing to knock on a door, and then even the Clearwater region too, yeah. Okay. There's a lot of CRP up in the Clearwater. There's a lot of uh, the Palouse Prairie, a lot of ag land up there. Again, it is heavily tied to private property. Yeah. So, you know, knocking on doors, getting permission, looking for walk-in areas, different things like that. Well, and, and tell us about Idaho's walk-in program because you do have some – obviously we talked about there's a, a ton of public land that's BLM land, Forest Service land, but you also have walk-in programs. Yeah, so we have a couple uh, different programs. Our Access Yes is kind of our traditional walk-in program. We have about 300,000, 400,000 acres of private property enrolled in that program. As part of that private property, oftentimes that private property allows access to um, what had historically been landlocked public land. So 
we always kind of the number we generally throw out is it's about 300 to 400,000 acres of private property and then another couple hundred thousand acres of of public land that lies beyond that is opened up for access and again it's it's similar to other pro, uh, you know states walk-in programs it's a it's it's uh it's private property it's open for hunting um, each parcel, you know, it's important for people who come out here to get either look on our website or look at our guide because some of the parcels, um, they're not uniform. Uh, okay. Some of them have specific landowner restrictions or, or things like that that the landowner's asking you. Okay, so it might be to similar to, to block management in Montana where you got to sign is. in in certain Yeah, it's not so much the sign in, but you'll have a parcel that says, you know, this one is open for deer hunting, bird uh, hunting, gotcha. and, and waterfowl hunting. And this one will say, you know, please don't. Sure. Um, we have one or two that, you know, please don't um, hunt sage grouse on this property or okay. something like that. Um, we also have a couple. We just signed a, a, a big agreement with our state land department. Um, so for st- folks that are east, this is kind of a these are lands that were endowed to the state of Idaho at, at statehood, and they are to generate revenue for our school system and our our permanent building fund. Hmm. Um, we signed an agreement with them. It's for two point three million acres of state land to keep access open to them. Wow. Um, you know, for the public, for hunting and fishing, and that. So that was something we just we just completed this last year. So uh, again, there's a lot of a lot of opportunity um in the state to go and and chase things yeah <laughs> um with without i mean yeah. and again the landowners in the state i you know many of them are very willing to uh, to let you on it just takes a little legwork um it is different than the midwest because oftentimes the farm you know it's not the farmhouse on the quarter section that you're looking to hunt you have to find the owner and figure out who the owner is and where they live or what their phone number is because you are dealing with bigger ranches or bigger farms or Hmm. you know especially those ranch properties or that rangeland country you said you get uh, people calling asking for advice Um, does that happen pretty regularly and and do those calls focus on obviously you're the upland bird guy so i'm guessing the upland bird calls get routed to you any idea what the um breakdown upland versus big game um inquiries are coming into this office i think there's a lot more big (laughs) big, okay that was my assumption but it it, idaho definitely jumps up in my mind as one of those western destination states for the bird hunter and you get those calls we we get some of those calls i wouldn't i mean it my phone's not ringing off the hook taking those calls okay. um more than happy to talk to hunters i mean sal and i do that on a regular occasion um but you know i, I think that when a lot of folks think about the west in idaho in particular they're thinking about a big bull elk or a big mule deer buck mm-hmm. or something like that and um yeah, for whatever reason, I mean, we we have incredible upland game bird resources, we have incredible waterfowl resources, and, and really, I, I do, you know, you may not go out and have a 20-bird a, a day, but it's that diversity and the opportunity for you to park your vehicle, start walking, and then have that opportunity to, to chase a variety of species yeah, yeah. without having to knock on a door, at least for me, coming from the Midwest. Um, I, I tell the story on occasion, you know, I came... I moved out here from Wisconsin, um, and public land, this may sound ridiculous, was a little bit intimidating because you're used to, well, i got to figure out who owns this property or what trail to stay on or mm-hmm. what road I can drive on, those sorts of things. 
back there, you can tell everybody where you hunt because nobody else is going to access it. (laughs) You get a lot more secretive when um, everybody else has access to to, to your hunting spots out here in the West, I I would argue. But it didn't take me long to overcome that uh, that feeling. But uh, it is different, and and it's really – it's incredibly liberating when you don't have to um, worry about trespassing and, you know, as long as you know your property boundaries. How how, um, worried were you when you left the truck about getting lost in the the vastness of the public land out here? Initially, I would say I was a a little bit. Uh um, That was also in the panhandle where it was much more forested and there was this uh, concept of grizzly bears that I hadn't really really thought about before. But, uh, I mean, like I said, you overcome kind of that feeling pretty quick and I, I don't know. You're yeah. you're originally a flatlander too, Sal. <laughs> yeah, it, you know I think it's the same thing. It is yeah. it's 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 exciting at the same time. Right. You know I mean there yeah. is that little apprehension when you right. park your truck and you look at a big old uh, you know range in front of you and know okay, uh, once I go over that ridge, there's not another house for mm-hmm. you know ten miles. But at the same time, it's pretty incredible. I mean I was going to kind of touch on that when you were hitting the Hell's Canyon stuff. Yeah. Not only is the bird hunting you know, uh, can be really a lot of fun. But I, I look at a lot of our hunts, uh, you know, the experience is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, just looking at your Hell's Canyon example, just the jet boat ride, if you go jet boat, you know, just yeah. the jet boat ride up the the river is exciting. You can see bighorn sheep. Mm-hmm. You can see, Elk. you know, I mean, we've both, you know, everybody's had those experiences. Yeah, you're chucker hunting or whatever, and you look over on the other ridge, and there's a herd of elk walking by or mule deer mm-hmm. or pronghorn or you see lion tracks or, or whatever in the snow. I mean, there's just some really cool uh, scenery. And just that alone, just standing on a ridge top and looking out and seeing nothing but, you know, ridge after ridge after ridge of public lands is pretty incredible. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a wet dream for an Instagram. <laughs> exactly. 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 <laughs> well, I, and, and your perspective changes, too. I mean, not having grown up in, in the West, I know that growing up in, in Wisconsin, it's not uncommon to go to your trailhead, and there's however many other vehicles. Yeah. And, you know, Sal, I go out to a spot now, and there's another vehicle there, and it, literally in front of thousands or maybe yeah. even millions of acres, and you're like, damn it. But you also touched on the big game, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and Idaho is definitely a big game, but there is bird hunting, hunting opportunities. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people that'll have a, when they are deer hunting or elk hunting, will have a shotgun in the, in the truck or with them and harvest a forest grouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's a pretty neat opportunity. Well, you talk about big game, and it reminds me of um, the Marty Ranch, right? Because uh, a land acquisition that we participated in that's now open to, to public hunting here in the state. Matt, you, you mentioned um, a statistic like there's every big game known to the state of Idaho, big game animal, um, on that property with the exception of like one. Right. Well, our, our chapter went over there to do a site visit uh, a few months ago, and they saw every big game animal in Idaho except for two, okay. which is the bighorn sheep and, and the mountain goat. That they didn't see, but they but, saw elk, moose, mule deer, whitetail, pronghorn. Yep. I don't know if I'm missing anything off of that. Bears would be. Yeah, I was going to say. I don't want to correct you, but yeah, there's a. Yeah. Fewer the predator side. There. Yeah, that's incredible, though, right? I mean, but they could be there. I mean. Yeah, they could. Yeah, I mean, I'm. Yeah, because a lot of folks don't realize that pheasants forever and quail forever have participated in land acquisitions out west, and and there's 
a really signature one. We call it the Marty Ranch. It's uh, called the Mud Lake WMA, right? Mm-hmm. If you find it on a map, and that's that's open to public hunting, and that's uh, as a result, uh, largely through Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever memberships. So, in our right. partnership with Idaho Game and Fish, correct. And and U.S. Department of Ag was involved in that in helping with a, the easement on there, but the initial easement on there. But yeah, it's a really tremendous piece of property that uh, connected up. Um, what was historically, you know, the smaller part of our Mud Lake WMA with Camas Prairie Refuge and has created this big, long corridor of public land hunting opportunity. And there is some pretty good bird hunting. There, it, there's also, um, you know, waterfowl hunting opportunities mm-hmm. out there. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch to, I, I teased this earlier, one of the only places in the country, actually one of three places in the country you can hunt Colombian sharptails. Um Idaho, Utah, Colorado, but Idaho, for Colombian sharptails, you guys um, have roughly 70% of the entire population of Colombian sharptails. For folks that are, you know, maybe you never heard of the Colombian version, how does it differ from your traditional sharp-tailed grouse? So compared to like a plain sharp-tailed grouse, um, it's going to be smaller. It's a smaller bird. They tend to be a little bit more pale in coloration. They, mm. they seem to be a little more gray, in my opinion, than than a plains bird. Um, still a lecking species. So these okay. birds, are the, the males are dancing on leks, and the females are visiting those leks in the springtime. Um, they have a, a kind of a, I, I don't know if it's so unique, because I think of, when I think of sharp tails, they're kind of a plastic critter. They can use a variety of different habitats. But in the West often associated with dryland ag, um, the CRP that's a, that, that is associated with that dryland ag, but then mountain shrub communities are really important to sharptails. That's how they make it through the winter. Hmm. So they actually are moving upslope in the wintertime and then going up to like choke cherry, service berry, uh, rose, uh, they'll, they'll bud on aspen trees, those sorts of things. So it's important for them to not only have that very critical nesting habitat in the springtime, but to also have those really intact and, and uh, uh, vibrant uh, mountain shrub communities as well. And, and what, what part of the state are you going to be able to find them? So primarily, you know, we talked about Twin Falls earlier, that Magic Valley region. So east of, uh, of, of the Magic Valley, so the very eastern edge of our Magic Valley region, all the way up into our, our uh, southeast and upper Snake region. So if you think of other population centers, Pocatello, as well as Idaho Falls, and that eastern portion of the state, kind of east of I-15. Okay. And do people come out here specifically looking to hunt Colombians? Is it a unique enough um, destination bird that it pulls people? I think it depends on the hunter. I certainly get a a number of phone calls from folks that do that. We certainly get folks from border states that do come up and take advantage of of our general season. Mm. Um, We do have a a one-month season during the month of October. You don't have to have uh, – it's not like a random draw. You can buy a permit, and that entitles you to two birds a day. And uh, uh, there's still quite a few access yes properties yeah. available in the mm-hmm. southeast region and the upper Snake region, and we've got several different chunks of public land where you can chase those birds as well. Well, I think Sal, you were mentioning that uh, your safe program CRP 42 or CP 42, correct? Um, uh, which is state acres for wildlife enhancement, is specifically designed uh, for creating Colombian sharptail habitat. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah, we, we worked with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to do a SAFE program. Uh, we actually have two in the state, one in the eastern part that's focused on Colombian sharp-tailed grouse, 
and then we have one in the western part that's just a general up upland game okay. bird uh, but the one in the east has been highly very successful um, we have about 147,000 acres enrolled of private property in the safe program and it's to focus on doing habitat work or doing crp uh, to meet the needs of Colombian sharp-tailed grouse. Any idea how many of those um, acres are also open to the public, uh, enrolled in the the S program? In, in, I'm stump. I might be yeah. stumping you off the cuff here. I can tell you. I think we have about forty thousand acres of access yes in the southeast part of the state, and about twenty-two thousand acres in access yes in the uh, Upper Snake. Okay. I can't say whether or not how much of that is in sharp-tailed grouse country. We also have two very, or several, or a couple large wildlife management areas, the hmm. Sand Creek Wildlife Management Area and the Tex Creek Wildlife Management Area, and I'm sure there's another one or two that I'm missing hmm. um, that that provide, you know, public opportunities for, uh, and there's some BL, there's quite a bit of BLM, like around the Sand Creek WMA that are open to sharp-tailed grouse hunting. Okay. So Yeah, I'd, I'd tack on there with uh, Montpelier and Georgetown. Yes, uh, wildlife management areas uh, both have sharp-tails. And then the Curlew National Grasslands, hmm. which is kind of right on the border between Idaho and Utah, also has sharp-tail populations. Uh, sage grouse. You're one of uh, 11 states that uh, has pretty good population of sage grouse. Maybe not a Wyoming or Montana uh, level of population, but you have a season and there's opportunity to come to Idaho and um, add a sage grouse to that nine bird upland mixed bag, right? Right. Yeah. And, and right now we, we, over the last few years, it's primarily been a seven day season for one bird a day. So pretty limited opportunity, but the opportunity does exist. Yeah. Um, and depending on where you are in the state, um, they can be um, relatively close to where you live or not so much. I mean, where, where we live here in Boise, I mean, it's what, probably a commitment of three hours or so to, yeah. to, to find sage yeah. grouse and, and to get in the country. It's not that they're necessarily a um, that far away as the mm -hmm. sage grouse flies, but the roads may not be very good to get you <laughs> into that country. Do you guys do it? Is that a regular destination for you, or is it like, yeah, it's off my list? It, it, you know, I think Jeff and I chased them together a couple of years ago, and we each, uh, you know, checked our boxes on yeah. that one. Um, it, it is, it's a neat opportunity. Um, it's an early season hunt. It's hot. Yeah. Um, Again, it's a one bird. You know, I, I like I said, it's a really neat opportunity and a unique experience to do. Um, but it is a you know, it's a one bird a day kind of hunt, and it doesn't overlap with well, it overlaps a little bit with sharp tails. Does no, it, it doesn't no, overlap with sharp tails. So no. it doesn't overlap with any of other our other bird seasons. So it's pretty much a destination. You have to be going out for sage grouse. Okay. Um, and we, we, we're partnered with, with uh, Idaho and with NRCS on Sage Grouse Initiative, and we have three sage grouse biologists in the state of Idaho working on habitat and um, uh, rangeland with you guys. Correct, yeah. We have three, like you said, we have three positions that are housed within Pheasants Forever. The funding form comes from part from the department, from NRCS, Pheasants Forever, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And they have, they've been doing excellent work around the state. Um, we have one of them in Rexburg. Uh, one down in Burley, and then one over here in Mountain Home, and they're working primarily with private landowners. Uh, the one in Burley actually focuses a lot on BLM hmm. uh, land, just, again, doing sage-grouse. The, the, the flag they fly is sage-grouse, yeah. but it's doing benefits for mule deer, elk, um, you know, probably huns in some areas. Um, 
you know, just a whole variety of species. Okay. You know, I know a lot of the stuff is with sage grouse, it can be as simple as putting the, um, the flags on the barbed wire. Is that an, is that a deal out in Idaho or is that a different state? That's yeah. Yeah. We definitely, you know, have been putting markers on flags to prevent or um, markers on fences to try to reduce collision with barbed wire fences. Um, the biggest emphasis has been, the burly one, a lot of we have a lot of invading junipers okay. into historic shrub step, uh, removing that uh, prescribed grazing, you know, kind of changing up the grazing management, um, restoration of wet meadows. Jeff, you know, mm-hmm. we kind of touched on that at the beginning. Mesic, How right? Yes, yes, that's a fancy yeah, word for wet. I just I just pulled out my biology <laughs> card and right, threw that right. one on the table. We had to make a really cool word for wet, um, <laughs> so that's what it is. Um, but again, you know, just we are a desert. Um, you know, the southern part. So anytime there's water, there's wildlife, and it's mm-hmm. it's the key. So restoring wet meadows, repairing areas, mm-hmm. wet, you know, any of those those wet areas is really kind of key. Um, and again, going back to that annual invasive, we have, mm-hmm. you know, a big issue with uh, wildfire. Um, sagebrush does not recover very well after fire. It takes a long time. And generally, it changes over those systems a lot from bunch grasses, native bunch grasses, to cheat grass or Medusa head, which is a problem. And, and, and tell me again how you, so coming from the come from Nebraska, okay. right? You you would do a prescribed burn, right? That doesn't work out here. What what are you doing to remove the invasive? Like junipers, obviously, you get the chainsaw out and cut them down, right? But what about the grasses? What are you doing to remove that? Yeah, so a lot of it is, uh, you know, in the more intact systems where you do have the native bunch grasses with some cheat grass in between, a lot of that is changing up the grazing system a little okay. bit. Um, some of it's herbicide. Um, but, again, you're just trying to give that competitive advantage to the natives, um, either through grazing out the, the cheatgrass when it's green before the natives come on or different things like that. So there's a bunch of different strategies. Okay. And beyond the three SGI farm bill biologists, we have two other uh, farm bill biologists that work with Idaho, and they're e- uniquely focused on some mule deer habitat that has larger benefits beyond just one species. Correct. Yeah, both of them, again, they they are pheasants forever positions, but they work within our mule deer initiative. And And while their emphasis is on doing good things, to improve mule deer habitat again those are kind of umbrella species just like sage grouse that if we do good things for mule deer um we're doing good things for other other animals it's it's how we talk about you know the pollinator connection with pheasants and quail right it's all the web of life we learned at third grade right? right and you know there's there's an emphasis and money and um a focus on mule deer but when you're creating mule deer habitat yeah, we're benefiting game birds. We're benefiting game birds. We're benefiting pygmy rabbits right. and songbirds, sage, sage sparrows, and you know the whole thing, pronghorn, everything. Right. Uh, sage grouse. Obviously, you can find them where there's sage habitat, but where in the state is the hot areas for um, for sage grouse? Is it mixed throughout, or is it north, south, east, west sort of thing? So southern Idaho in general, um, kind of the southwest uh, region that we talked about, kind of the Owyhee Mountains is, mm-hmm. a, is a fairly strong stronghold. Um, and then 
south of Twin Falls in that Magic Valley region, our salmon region right. um, is a stronghold, as well as our, our, our upper snake and, and to a lesser extent our southeast region. I don't think we have as much hunting opportunity in the southeast. And then we had a fairly substantial fire that went through the upper snake this region or this year that, that restricted hunting there. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I just wanted to revisit one of the things you're, you mentioned in regard to music or wet areas yeah. that, you know, that, that Sal is, is absolutely dead on. Where we have moisture, we have wildlife. And where most of that moisture is, where most of that water is, is associated with private Our lands. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think something, the stat is like 90% of the, the wetlands in the West are located on 10% of the property. And, mm-hmm. the, and those are almost entirely private land. And right. correct me if my stats no, are wrong, no, there, but I think that that's pretty close. So that begs to the, the private lands programs that come primarily out of the farm bill, right? Um, that help create habitat, but then also make it um, lucrative and viable for the private landowner. Correct. Yeah, we have, you know, we work very closely with our conservation partners and U.S. Department of Ag to provide, you know, these opportunities to private landowners in the state. And, and Jeff, you know, I mean, it's it's the same story across the whole West and we're yeah. kind of beating a dead horse. But I mean... When they came across and settled the West, they didn't settle the the rocks right. and mm-hmm. the and the dry stuff at the top. They took all the you know they settled all the water, all the deep soils, and all the you know the the grasslands, which is also much of our very you know most productive system. So yeah, we work a lot with uh, private landowners and our partners, uh, the whole suite of conservation partners and USDA to try to put these farm bill programs on the ground, or we have state. Uh, funded habitat programs and then again you know right. chapters have money and different ngos have money to put into these projects and i'm and i'm always guilty as a midwesterner of going back to crp over and over and over but you know programs like equip and is you know really valuable as you head west right and there's a whole suite of farm bill programs beyond crp that's creating yeah. habitat for the birds crp you know if if we were talking you know when we're talking colombian sharp-tailed grouse and some of those species i definitely lean very heavily to crp mm-hmm. um, but equip the environmental quality incentive program is our workhorse right that is what we are doing the majority of our sage grouse work through we also had a tremendous um, interest from landowners uh, during the old the, the easement programs within the farm bill have changed it used to be the grassland reserve program but there's a whole huge i wish you know this was video we could show you a map of all the easements up in the pioneer it's an incredible um, array of a bunch of landowners that got together put easements on their property and it's connected up what was the na- or the national forest down through these huge swaths of ranch land down to uh, Craters of the Moon National Monument. And it's just a really neat landscape that's going to be protected in perpetuity because of these easements out mm. there. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you were going to say something? Well, I was just going to – you are talking about CRP and, and really farm bill programs. And, I mean, I think when, when Sal and I think about the connection between our, our programs and really any program that's going to benefit wildlife, we're thinking about how we can – get the best bang for our buck. And we're spending a lot of time right now looking at strategic conservation delivery and working with partners like the Intermountain West Joint Venture and and others to help us really look at our landscape and identify those areas that are that are most critical to, to wildlife habitat. And, you know, if I think about our HIP program, it's our Habitat Improvement Program. Mm-hmm. This is within, within Sal's shop, so I'll let him fill in the numbers. <laughs> but 
we don't we don't have a farm bill level amount of money. I mean, we're talking millions of dollars there, sure. right? That we're, that we're using right. to sign up folks for easements, whether it's a CRP easement or, or a grazing easement. So when when we're able to assist with a project, we want to be able to work with partners and, and stretch every dollar that for we sure. have. Um, we we haven't spent a ton of time on California Valley quail. I, anything unique to California quail in Idaho in terms of maybe habitat programs um, that that are extremely helpful to to what they need in the state, or is it covered with some of the other things we talked about? You know, I guess I would you know look to Jeff a little bit. You know, I think CRP is probably helping out quail, but maybe not to the extent, you know, I mean, extent it is for those other species. But again, I think just that good grazing management, those riparian restorations, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, anything along those lines, kind of maintaining the ditches for flood irrigation and some of those canals, I think is all going to benefit those okay. those California quail. They're, yeah. I was just going to say that the, Primarily, they're associated with riparian areas. Right. So right. these areas where there's there's some moisture and then there's some shrubs. I mean, they're looking for that escape cover a lot of the times. I mean, every once in a while you'll catch them out in the open, but they're mostly associated with kind of tangles and, and, and pretty brushy stuff. And I, as Sal was talking, I was thinking about kind of kind of CRP in the in the West. Um, and I, if you were to ask myself and, and my colleagues in Oregon and Washington, you know, I mean, pheasants were introduced in Oregon, right? right. I mean, that's the first yep. place that they were introduced. They took off, and so we had pheasants all over. CRP is not necessarily the the, the driving factor for pheasants in the West as it is in the Midwest, mm-hmm. um, in the Dakotas, those sorts of places. So we're looking at ways to, to better benefit pheasants through an update to the National Wild Pheasant Technical Committee. So the coordinator, gotcha. Scott yep. Taylor, obviously housed yep. through in your Brookings. shop. Yeah, housed through your shop. It, it, it Sal and I just had correspondence with him last week talking about other things that we could do that we believe will benefit pheasants here here in the state of Idaho and across the West, and that's thinking about how to how to get more forbs into our plantings um, and those sorts of things. Mid mid contract management is super important in the Midwest, but we don't have the moisture here to get the a, a big bang for our buck there. We're, right. If if we do that, if we're going to till up a field in the middle or or, or disc a field uh, in the middle of a contract, we're going to get weeds sure. um, yeah. and probably annual grasses, and that's yeah. definitely not going to be um, productive for for pheasants. So one way, if you are listening and you're in Idaho and you want to help create more pheasants in the state of Idaho, is to become a member of Pheasants Forever and get involved with the chapter. Um, Matt, what are some of the the chapters that key towns in the state of Idaho that we have chapters and and maybe also include where where you're hoping to get some some new energy started? So I mean, the the key chapters we have here are basically in the you know high population density areas. Um, We've got a, a Pheasants Forever and a Quail Forever chapter in Boise. And um, over in Idaho Falls, we have a, a PF chapter as well. And um, all three of those are very active. Uh, we've got an, another great chapter in uh, Elmore County, uh, just east of here. And um, we're really looking to recruit more people in the kind of southeast portion of the state around uh, from Twin Falls to Pocatello. Uh, we've, we've got a couple chapters there that need volunteers and um, hopefully we have some people listening that can uh, give me a call or, or an email and get involved. Well, uh, throw out your email and uh, phone numbers if some somebody's listening and wanna wanna learn a little bit more about what we got going on in Idaho. Cool. Yeah. Um, my email is uh, m harding, um, my last name, at pheasantsforever.org, and that, that's the best way to reach me. And um, 
You can also look on uh, pheasantsforever.org and quailforever.org and go down to the bottom and click find a chapter and um, you'll see where, where your closest chapter is. Um, they have contact details on there if you want to get directly in touch with them. And if you don't see something in your area, then reach out to me and hopefully we can make it happen. Pocatello. We're talking to you, Pocatello. We need a chapter in Pocatello. We do. Pocatello Pheasants Forever. It just It's like too good a name not to have it. Uh, chapter there um if you're interested in coming to idaho uh or if you you, you live in idaho fifteen dollars and 75 cents for adult uh resident hunting license it's a bargain right absolutely uh non-resident small game uh 97.75 does that cover all those species outside of turkeys uh, Anything I, you got to apply for special? You'd have to buy a, a sage or sharp tail permit, which okay. is minimal. It's, yeah, it's a few bucks. Yeah, it's a few few dollars, so right. it, it's not a lot. Um, yeah, and and so for those non-residents, um, we offer a, a very inexpensive, in my opinion, three-day license that's a, under forty dollars, and I think you can buy three of those before you have to buy a a full season non-resident permit. So. That's if a great you, deal. If you just want to try it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Under $40 to come out and walk Hell's Canyon and, you know, fill your Instagram feed with the most beautiful places right. in the world, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that, you know, kind of the classic uh, quote about chucker hunting, right, is uh, the first time you go chucker hunting, it's for fun. Mm-hmm. Every time after that is for revenge. So, I mean, if you want to come back for more, that's the. Uh, <laughs> so is there truth in that? I think to some extent there's truth <laughs> there to is. it. Yeah, I mean, if it's about getting a chucker, if it's about enjoying the scenery in the country, I mean, it doesn't get much better. I mean, uh, you know, Matt and Sal will attest to this. I think I think part of the allure of chucker hunting is just the 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 physical uh, challenge associated with it. It's it's not easy to do, and I, that's one thing that you know when when folks call. Obviously, talk about the dog thing that I was was mm-hmm. mentioning, but also, you know, what kind of shape are you in? I mean, if if you're not in good shape, trucker hunting is going to be miserable. Uh, it's not going to be any fun um, at all. And so you need to prepare yourself before you come in. And that's thinking about gaining 1,000 to 1,500 feet before you're going to get into birds. That's good advice. <laughs> now, if, yeah. if folks do want to contact you and, and talk through that, you know, maybe develop a personal training program with you. <laughs> but if they want to ask uh, some questions about bird hunting, how do they reach you? So there's a couple different options. Check out our website, please. Um, idfg.idaho.gov is a great place. We've got some resources there that you can check out in regard to the different species that we hunt in Idaho. Um, and then you can uh, try me at uh, my email address, jeff.conetter uh, at idfg.idaho.gov. And uh you can reach our headquarters office here at 208-334-2920. So. And, and Sal, it, um, any specific habitat programs that uh, you want landowners to know about or uh, you might have some sign-ups coming up uh, of particular interest? You know, we're still working with the U.S. Department of Ag on getting, uh, you know, finding out when our next CRP sign up and safe. And we're we're asking for more acres for our safe program. Is safe program. closed right now? In it Idaho? is closed right now. Okay. Um, and we actually are at our max allocation for our eastern safe. So we do have a request into USDA at the in Washington D.C. asking for uh, additional acres. But again. Um, I would say this, you know, for landowners in the state, they should contact their uh, local regional office. We have uh, seven of them in the state. 
you know, and contact them and talk to the local, you know, find out who the habitat biologist is for the district that their property is in or where they're interested in and just talk to them. I, I hate to spit out different programs because it's so much easier sure. if they just meet with us and say, hey, this is what I'd like to do. And then let us help them walk them through the options. You know, some people just need a little bit of advice or a little bit of information. Others are looking for that financial side. So, go ahead. Well, I just want to follow up on that. You know, in regard to a couple things. One, um, when it comes to, to coming to Idaho to, to visit, you know, I, Sal and I can help with, with some of that. But talking to our regional staff is really important. They're typically on the ground a heck of a lot more than the two of us that are sitting behind our desk most of the day trying to uh, write management plans or work on funding, that kind of thing. So um, in general, Clearwater region, um, when you want a, a very diverse mixed bag challenge associated with Chuckers Gray Partridge, so that's based out of our, out of Lewiston, Idaho. Um, Southwest region here based out of Nampa. Nampa. Magic Valley region is based out of our Jerome office. And then we talked about the Southeast region um, again, Columbian sharp-tailed grouse, Pocatello, and our Upper Snake region. Again, Columbian sharp-tailed grouse, forest grouse, both of those regions really. And then uh, Upper Snake is based out of uh, Idaho Falls. So those are the, the best regions to contact. But then also talking about your the, the private lands work and, um, you know, really our goal, I think, and I don't want to put words in, in Sal's voice or, or his or in his mouth or his staff, but, you know, it, it's our goal to work with folks, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, something that's going to benefit everybody. Um, right. we, we understand that people want to make a living and uh, we're, we're not looking to uh, ask people to set aside all their ground. But, you know, is there a way for us to, to, to collaborate and work together to get habitat, you know, wildlife and and agriculture on right. the ground at the same time? Right. And, and I guess I hate to, I don't want to forget our federal land partners out there as well. We, we do a lot of uh, work with BLM and Forest Service on habitat work, a lot of fire restoration uh, this last year. Uh, Great point. We call them BD. Everybody, this, you know, the beaver dam analogs that's kind of re restoring those riparian systems. We've been putting, you know, working with BLM to put those on their, their ground. We work with our state land department as well to um, every year, you know, Wildfires becoming a little bit more and more common, a little bit more and more frequent in some of these areas that didn't have it. So we're working a lot with our state land uh, partners and the governor's office to do fire uh, rehab, reseedings and treatments after these fires go through for restoration. So, I mean, it's 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 a whole uh, partnerships in this state, I think, are really great and, and they just continue to grow, whether it's the NGO. Well, everybody in the room, yeah. you know, we're, we're starting to go to meetings and there's, uh, you know, a whole list of acronyms from everybody who's from whatever agency and organization they're working together on mm -hmm. some of these bigger pro projects. Do they ever hand out a sheet with a cheat sheet of what all those acronyms mean? It's no, no. It's all, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta be part of the secret society yeah. to, to understand them. We know you, whether you belong or not, if you can, you can't, uh, know what the acronym is oh well that's a great role that 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 the uh the pheasants forever staff here yeah. in idaho play Excellent. though i mean they're, they're sitting down you know sometimes at a kitchen table or, or kicking dirt um, with folks out out in the field talking them through those you know the acronym soup associated yeah. With, yeah. with with farm bill programs and, and what we can offer for for wildlife habitat enhancement so as as we close and and go to to final thoughts is there something uh, we're done we're, we're close <laughs> we're close uh, you know, the last couple of seasons, maybe a story, um, a nugget, uh, a tip that, or maybe, you know, maybe a moment with your dog that jumps out to you that sort of is purely Idaho, that 
you know, that kind of tickles your memory? Man, I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good one. I, there, it's again. It's a lot of it is just that that internal enjoyment out there. I mean, uh, you know, I I, I don't want to. The bird hunting is tremendous, but you know, I mean, and and for those folks out there that are far better shots than I am, <laughs> it, it can be a fill your cooler kind yeah. of opportunity. I tend to be like a fill your pocket right. kind of guy as far as my bird hunting. Um, we joke about the fact that we we could put a lot more uh, free range organic chickens in our freezer exactly. on the money we spend, exactly. you know, running around chasing birds. But. but I mean, every time you're out there, it's just it's just. It's that fresh air. It's seeing the scenery. It's looking down down a cool valley. Uh, it's looking over and seeing pronghorn in the valley bottom, or finding a cool, uh, you know, a golden eagle feather on the rock top, or something like that. That just and again, I I think everybody here loves working their dogs, and so you always got yeah. a buddy, a buddy or a companion with you up there to talk talk it over and and have lunch with. So I mean, those are just kind of the things that I think about. I, you know, I'm I'm a dog name collector. I love hearing people's dog names. What, what's your large monster lander's name? So my current dog uh, is Bliss, um, and uh, her her father, uh, who unfortunately we lost this past season, his name was Fergus. Okay. Where what is Bliss and Fergus? Where what's the reference? Well, uh, I, I guess to go down the road of naming large monster landers. If 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 I had a kennel for large monster landers, and my first litter was on the ground, all of those bird dogs would start with an a my second litter all of them their registered name uh. would be a b and so my fergus was out of the f litter and uh, bliss was out of the b litter and Whoa. so fergus is actually associated with fergus falls minnesota really? uh, when i did my graduate work in north dakota my wife was in wisconsin we would meet in fergus falls because it was kind of halfway for us to, to get together so okay. that's where that name came from and bliss was just a name that we liked yeah so it works Sal, you get a couple of short hairs. I do. I have two. I have one named Piper and one named Josie. And uh, Piper, I don't know. I think it was just a family one that kind of we came up together uh, in that. And uh, and then Josie, I, you know, I stuck with a uh, – it's a female, but mm -hmm. we have the, you know, the outlaw Josie whale. For or sure. if you're a Scooby-Doo fan, you have Josie and the Pussycats, you know, <laughs> in, in that cartoon. So. so I was looking up uh, – <laughs> Like, wow. <laughs> exactly. I was looking up, um, you know, just interesting facts about Idaho, and obviously uh, Pheasants Forever being based in Minnesota. we got a ton of listeners in Minnesota. Uh, they may already know where I'm heading with this, but probably the most famous Minnesota twin of all time is from Idaho, Harmon Killebrew. You guys ever come across a, a bird dog named Harmon in your pet traveling? There you go, folks. There's a name I'm throwing out there for you. Matt, what's your, what's your pup's name? He's patiently waiting in the truck for us. Um, his name's Cedar. Uh, his full name is Cedarberg, which is a, a mountain range in South Africa. And my wife and I got married pretty close to there and uh, spent our honeymoon rock climbing there. So. Winner, winner. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good story. That's cool. Well, that is a good story. <laughs> yeah. If I could go back to, you know, your, you know, memories or yeah. whatnot, I, I would certainly tack on to whatever uh, Sal said there in regard to just the landscape and being out there. And, and um, you know, all that being said, I love it when my dog disappears out of view and then mm -hmm. I find them on point. Yeah. Um, that is one of the best feelings in the world to be able to, 
you know, a big part of, uh, of bird hunting is that relationship with your partner, um, your hunting partner and no, trusting them to be on point waiting for you, um, is, is pretty cool. And I, for me, one thing, you know, having lost a dog this past year and then kind of having another dog in the wings, um, bliss does something unique where, um, when she's on point, she will actually look back at me to make sure that I'm coming. <laughs> That's um, awesome. And um, I've never had a dog like that before. They're usually pretty just focused on what's going on. She's kind of like, come on, buddy. Yeah, They're that like is right here. It, it is uh, unbelievable, that connection that you oh, develop yeah. over. Because I have a, my older short hair, who's 12 now, um, particularly when we're rough grouse hunting in the woods, you know, and she can come across scent, but... You know, she'll she'll stop solid when she hits that scent cone. But she may be pointing to the left, but knows that the bird is to the right, and I'm coming in in front of her, and she'll make contact eye contact with me, and her eyes will point me to mm-hmm. the direction, not where she's uh, pointing, but it's like, hey, bud, look to your right. It's, oh, it's going to come over here. Right. It's like incredible, right? It's amazing. Um, the other thing when you talked about pointing that I was curious about, my assumption is when your dog's on point in chucker country, it's kind of, well, it's going to be a chucker, right? But when you're moving up that, okay, so this is good. <laughs> but when you're moving up that Hell's Canyon and you got nine, well, not maybe in that one place, but you got nine different upland birds that could be flushing in front of your dog. How accurate of an assessment can you make of a, per, you know, like, that point right there is going to be a pheasant that point is going to be a valley quail that point is going to be a hunt or is it just an absolute crapshoot i think in general and i heard you there sal <laughs> i mean like, chuckers and partridge occupy chuckers and, and huns or, or great okay. partridge yep. tend to occupy some of the very similar habitat okay. so you could easily walk in on something you think is going to be chuckers and a covey of partridge or blow up or vice versa yeah. but it's uh, really just two of those species in that area i mean and i had pheasants one. you shot a blue grouse out yeah. of a covey of chuckers once yeah. when we were out so yeah. really so a covey of chuckers gets up and a blue grouse is in the mix with i you. shot I, what he thought was the biggest chucker <laughs> <laughs> i was going for a boone and crockett it was a Boone and Crockett chucker. <laughs> a bull migrator. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, like Jeff's saying, it, you know, I've, we've all worked that where you're yeah. working a ridge line and you're, boom, boom, you're hitting yeah. hun coveys or whatever, and then all of a sudden there comes the chucker one. And like Jeff or said, a sage grouse. Or a sage grouse. You no know? kid, that you would to, scare the heck out of you, right? You know, it's pretty neat when it does because, yeah, you're expecting a whole covey and then this thing that gets up like a 747 in front of you, uh, you know, takes off. But I've had, you know, occasionally, not very often, Often, but you know, like Jeff said, you walk into a little shrub thicket in this dry side of the hill, and all of a sudden, I missed bigger than you know heck a couple of years yeah. ago because I was my brain was not processing why that why there was only one bird coming out of it, and it was again another. This was a different blue grouse than the one I shot, but you know, just neat yeah. opportunities. So you, you talked about a, ch- a group of chuckers getting up, and there's a blue in the middle of it. How often do you have multi-species flushes? Honestly, not very no. often. That, okay. that, I would say that the species don't intermingle uh, a lot, but you can find them in close proximity yeah. to each other. There's no doubt about that. Now, I think that's the one and only time I saw that. Yeah. Okay. I assume they were just feeding on the same, using sure. the same 
food resources at that point. They weren't hanging out and being buddies. So, I, so I'm a, a big baseball guy, old-time baseball guy, so I keep going back to these percentages. But just humor me for a second. When, when you're walking up to a dog on point, percentage-wise, how many times do you think you get it right? Uh, what species is going to flush? Oh. Uh, you know, I well, it's not. I don't know if it's a fair question. I mean, because a lot of I think it's some Depends of it is just going are. back into the same. We have everybody has their little favorite spots or their honey holes, and you tend to know what's going to be what there. you're going to yeah. find yeah. in that. Um, yeah, I guess that's I don't tough. Know. Yeah, it all depends on where you're going to be. I, I mean. Where I hunt, the you guys are being biologists right now. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're hedging we, your bets we, on me. We can lie to you and say it's 99. <laughs> we can All sense it. We yeah. can sense yeah. it. <laughs> well, that, it's been a really fun conversation, guys. I really appreciate you taking time on a Saturday to come into the office and, and share some knowledge about not only um, that tremendous habitat work that's being done in the state of Idaho, but the you know really exciting hunting opportunities here this is a, a dream destination that my takeaway will be that it is a bucket list hunt but it's a bucket list hunt before you get out of shape right absolutely you, you know if you're uh, if you're closing in on you know a beer belly you better get to work i mean there are some opportunities there's folks that hunt huns down on the flats there's folks that hunt uh quail on the islands in the snake river which again a kind of a mixed waterfowl quail you know which is a pheasants little, pheasants you know which is a little less strenuous but yeah yeah sal jeff idaho game and fish department thank you very much for for taking time to talk with us yeah thanks for having thanks us for it's having been us. fun yeah. yeah this has been good matt appreciate you joining as a co-host today i think uh our next move is to go back to um the backcountry hunters and anglers rendezvous and and uh, check out what's happening and the public lands front with our buddies over there well at least for you i've got to go out to ontario oregon and meet the chapter there but good I'll, I'll be back Good. You're going to look at, that's right, you're going to look at a habitat project yeah. out there. Very fun. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening. Um, if you are like me and have always dreamed about Idaho as a uh, destination for a bird hunt, don't delay any longer. Plan your trip this fall. Uh, nine different upland birds. I'm sorry I'm kicking out the turkeys because I don't consider them upland birds myself. Um, nine different upland birds that you can chase for under $100 for the entire season, under $40 for a three-day three hunt. Um, just, you know, if you're an Instagrammer, Boy, like I said earlier, this is your wet dream bird hunt. Come on out to Idaho. This is Bob St. Pierre. You've been listening to uh, On the Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Thanks very much for giving us a listen. And uh, get out there and support the Habitat organization. Thank you. <laughs>